Ray Holt's career spans the Cold War, and now, as a teacher in Mississippi, Ray is actively passing on his own education as an accidental engineer. In this episode, we hear from Ray himself about his early involvement with hardware engineering of semiconductors, as they were used by the military in fighter jets, and about their commercial adoption by tech titans like Intel and AMD in the present day. Enjoy! Welcome all. Uh, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Ray Holt. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ray. Hello, Max. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for our audience that doesn't know about your background, uh, you're, for one, an awesome guest to have on the show, and I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I realize you're a very busy dude. You've got uh, teaching uh, and a lot of other responsibilities, so thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Uh, for people who don't know you, do you mind introducing... Uh, uh, maybe correcting how I might have gotten this introduction uh, accurate or inaccurate. Okay. Um, I did not invent the semiconductor. That was done <laughs> out of Fairchild Semiconductor in um, Palo Alto. And then Texas Instruments invented the transistor. And then when I came along, I used that technology to make a microprocessor out of the technology. So Got it. We had a set of chips that actually worked as a computer then. Do you mind sharing for our audience uh, why, why you were working on this stuff at the time? Uh, how about if I lead into it with uh, how I got started, because that's an interesting story. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> so out of high school, where a lot of us get guidance, the only guidance I was given was don't go into engineering. And that was because my mechanical aptitude was very low and mechanical engineering was a real hot field at the time. So I was advised not to go into engineering, but even though my math was high, they didn't really key on that. So I just kind of floundered for uh, at least a year at a community college. I actually walked out of my classes the first semester, got all Fs, uh, came back, wanting to make the baseball team and couldn't make it because I had all the Fs. Ended up transferring up to the University of Idaho where a friend of mine was quarterback. And surprisingly, they accepted me. I had to declare a major. I knew it wasn't engineering. So I looked down their list. I saw forestry. I liked the outdoors. So for three years, I studied forestry. And kind of mediocre, you know, B student, B, little OB maybe. And the dean of the forestry called me in one day and said, if I wanted to stay in forestry, I had to really do better in chemistry, which I had never had in high school. So I was struggling in chemistry. But he suggested I take a class in physics of electricity. And I did. And it was heavily math heavily hands-on, and I absolutely loved it. I got straight A's and everything. Never dreamed I'd ever get all A's in a class, homework, finals, midterms. And then I realized I was surrounded by engineers. And I said, this is crazy. I think I can be an engineer. 
And so I started looking around at engineering schools and found uh, Cal Poly and Permona, which had a new program they were starting called electronic engineering. I think it was one year old at the time. And it was going to concentrate on small circuits and not the big power circuits as electrical engineering does. So they accepted me, I transferred, I had to do another three years of college and absolutely loved it, maintained a high B. And near the end, I had to take an elective and in looking down the list, I chose an elective that talked about math and computers and it was called Theory of Switching Systems. And I loved it. It was basically uh, binary arithmetic and logic design. But they didn't really apply it to designing computers, just designing control systems, you might say. <clears throat> and then I graduated and had three interviews. The two I liked didn't make me an offer, and <laughs> the one I liked made me an offer, which was pretty good 17000 at the time. That was fairly high for a bachelor degree engineer. And they wanted me to design amplifiers, which was one of my worst courses. <laughs> but it was an offer. <laughs> and I uh, accepted it. And the first day I hired in, uh, I mean, the first day I walked in, the human resource uh, gentleman uh, said, well, I see you've had a computer class, which stunned me because I didn't know I had one. He goes, yes, right here, the switching systems. I said, oh, yes, yes. He said, well, you're the only person in our engineering department that has had a formal computer class. Uh, we have a new project for you. And he took me to the basement of the company, which is where the production line is located. And he took me up to a big box and took the lid off. He said, uh, do you have any idea what this is? And it looked like a transmission, but it had a lot of wires in it. So I just said, it looks like a transmission, but I don't think it is. He goes, you're right. It's a mechanical computer full of gears and cams and potentiometers, wires. He said, this computer is used on the F-4 Phantom Jet, which was our main jet flying in Vietnam. He says, your new project will be to convert that computer to a solid state or electronic computer. That's what they called it at the time. <clears throat> well, since I was told not to go into engineering because of mechanical aptitude, <laughs> wasn't quite sure this was going to work out. <laughs> uh, but of course, I didn't say anything. I was very excited just to be there. I was the youngest in the department, surrounded by amazing, amazing engineers that really knew their stuff, very specialized. And I ended up being one of two specialized logic designers on the project. The good thing is, the next day they said, well, we really don't have the contract yet. We think it'll be two months, so just start studying. And if you need to go to a course, just let us know. If you need to buy books, let us know. And that's what I did. And after two months, I was pretty uh, savvy on designing computers, logic, you might say. And for, for, for our audience that isn't familiar with where 
Cal Poly Pomona is located. It's in Southern California, nearby Los Angeles. What was the job market like at the time that you were graduating Cal Poly Pomona and uh, finding these jobs? Was that, were all of them located in Los Angeles? There was a huge amount in Los Angeles because of the space program. And most of them had some relationship to space uh, spacecraft. And the company I hired into, Garrett Air Research, you know, they did a lot of the propulsion systems, uh, engines, and air pressure systems on commercial and military spacecraft. Uh, the three I interviewed with actually came to the school. And at the time, you know, I was happy to have three looking at me. But it was a good market for engineers. You know, I think I probably could have gone anywhere in the country if I would have pursued it. Um, but my family was in L.A. And, um, you know, so everybody likes to stay near their family when they first start. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory or JPL still is in Pasadena, I think. Still in Pasadena, yeah. And later on, I, I was able to do a computer interface board for them for the moon lander. And I got to go there and actually see the the prototype of the moon lander. It's pretty amazing. So you, on your on your first or second day on the job, that that's a pretty overwhelming experience or an overwhelming amount of responsibility that must have felt like they were they were giving you. Uh, when did you know, or how did you know that ultimately this, the work you were doing would be would end up on uh, on fighter jets in real in the real world? <laughs> that's a good question. It took about six months because they really didn't talk about the real purpose of the plane. Uh, they just gave me like a specification, contract specification. So the computer had to do this, this, and this. Now the amazing part was I found out early on I didn't have to know anything about mechanical. And we had a gentleman, uh, Bill McCormick was his name. He was an applied, applied mathematician. And I remember talking to him about all this mechanical stuff. He says, Ray, don't worry about it. The mathematics used in the mechanical computer is the same math used in the new one. He says, we're, we're going to go by the math. So all I had to do then is to start thinking about how to implement uh, math equations, which is all the computer does anyway. You know, uh, plus, you know, the controlling of the input and output. And then sometime around six months, they said it was called the F-14, and it was going to be a supersonic fighter jet. And, you know, the, we all knew it was a Cold War, and, you know, they told us, you know, it was supposed to be the big jet to counteract the Russians. So that's kind of how we proceeded with it. Uh, the project was had a lot of attention in the company and uh, with the Navy, and a lot of demanding that we stay on schedule. Every time I would ask my boss, you know, if we could have a week delay or two weeks delay, he said, absolutely not. He says, do you need more people or do you need more money? And that's kind of how the project proceeded. Ultimately, we finished uh, on schedule, uh, almost exactly two years from when I was hired. And 
and the computer worked the first time. And we got to deliver it to the Navy and the plane flew ahead of schedule and was very successful. Now there's a lot of interesting engineering in there. I'll just kind of highlight it. Sure. Uh, making a computational computer on small chips had never really been done before. So we worked with one company called American Microsystems in Santa Clara, California. And they helped us come up with a design spec. Now it took three iterations. So we would design the, what we thought was gonna, a system that would work. They said, no, the chips are too big or we can't go that fast. And so we'd go back and design again. And they said, no, why don't you think about doing it this way? So finally, the third time, they said, yeah, we think we can make the chips. And that's kind of where we got to the point where we knew we had a working design. We just hadn't seen the chips yet. <laughs> the chips were going to be larger than most had ever been made, more transistors on them. Uh, but because it was a Navy contract, you had to go out for multiple quotes. And so we sent quotations out to Rockwell, General Instruments, and American Microsystems. All three of them came back and said they don't want to make them, including American Microsystems. <laughs> they said, yeah, we helped you with the development, but you only want 1,000 total, and we're making 10,000 calculated memory chips a month, so we're not interested in doing the production. And so that was kind of a shocker to all of us. <laughs> and so that we, were, we told the Navy that, and the administrative people did. I never really directly interfaced with the Navy. And the project was halted for two weeks, and all of a sudden someone came to me and said, uh, well, if you could pick one of the three, which one would you pick? Well, I said American Microsystems because they had already worked with me in defining the chips. Then about three days later, they told me, okay, we're going to continue the project. We want you to fly up there the next day from Los Angeles and uh, start working on chips. And I had no idea what happened. I found out later that the president of Garrett Air Research, the company I was working for, flew up there and made an offer to buy out American Microsystems, 51% of their stock, at a very good price. And so my company owned, owned them. And part of the deal was that they would help us set up a second company, a second source, because all military products had to have two sources. And so they set up a new semiconductor company in San Diego called Garrett Air Research, which later on was bought out by Motorola. And then after the chips were made, uh, the stock deal was that Garrett would sell the stock back at a very low price. So the three owners of American Microsystems, probably in the, around 35 years of age, end up becoming multimillionaires just from this deal. So we proceeded and we were able to 
work with them and lay out the chips. And we did exhaustive, exhaustive testing of the binary and the math and and uh, first set of chips came out working. It was absolutely amazing. Was the industry at the time exclusively focused on aerospace and aeronautics? Were any of your coworkers or yourself suspecting that what work you were doing now would have commercial applications outside of uh, the Vietnam War and the Cold War? The answer is yes. Uh, my entire company was aerospace related, and there was a lot of vendors. I mean, most of LA, you know, with Northrop and North American, uh, LA was full of aerospace and San Diego. And, you know, a lot of the technology from the space program filtered down to the commercial aircraft and then eventually into our normal day to day. Yeah, a lot of the jobs were related to aerospace. Uh, and because of aerospace, you know, that really propelled the semiconductor market, you know, the making of small chips, uh, making of uh, small chips that did calculate, you know, to change our calculator market from mechanical calculators to electronic, and then eventually the computer market. Uh, now, what I had described to you all happened from 1968 to 1970, June of 68 to June of 70. And computers were only in large companies. You know, the government had a large computer and every insurance company had one, and that was about it. The thought of having a computer in your home was just outrageous. First, why would you want one, you know? Uh, So, you know, that wasn't in the thinking, but having a piece of equipment that did calculations fast was very desirable because as our needs grew, we wanted to control big equipment, control like nuclear plants or control manufacturing plants, and you needed controllers that worked fast. And having a programmable microprocessor was really a big advantage. See, that didn't kick in until the late 70s. So when I finished this project in 71, they wouldn't let me publish a paper on it. Uh, they, they wouldn't let me patent anything. And they just said, just don't talk about it. <laughs> it's kind of, I never had to sign anything, but I did have a clearance. Uh, you know, with with clearances, you just, and being a patriot, you know, you just didn't want to go out and blab when they said, you're not supposed to. So, so I never really revealed it except to my family and maybe a good friend, but it didn't really mean anything to them either. So, so life went on. And, uh, after the project was over, I moved up to Santa Clara and actually worked for American microsystems for, uh, almost three years and designed a couple of calculator chips and two more commercial microprocessors. And that was about the same time Intel started coming out with theirs. And Intel had it was a very big marketing powerhouse. So at some point, 
when the microprocessors were accepted in the industry, the Intel marketing just dominated everybody. So my company in 1974 had a meeting between the owners and the marketing people and none of us engineers, and they decided there was no future in microprocessors, and they fired 25 of us because they wanted to stay in the calculator business. Now, I can see from a marketing business point of view that might have been a good decision, but certainly doesn't show that you're a visionary. <laughs> you know, you're just looking out for yourself day to day, you know. And microprocessors, the volume wasn't that big. I mean, if a company bought two, three hundred, you'd be fortunate. You know, today Intel claims they sell a billion a year. You know, they're all embedded into equipment. Um, but what was interesting is one of the one of those 25 ended up going to starting the Hatari computer line. One went to AMD and became the chief microprocessor designer at AMD. One went to Intel and became the head of the graphics division. Um, one went to Commodore and ran their engineering. So all that knowledge just spread out across the industry. And they'd already gone through this high-tech chip processing development. So even though a lot of people tell me, oh, well, you, your design was secret, so it had no impact. Well, it's probably true that the design itself didn't, but you know what all the people learned from it had a huge impact on the industry. Well, you yourself had a role in spreading some of that information and education. You uh, were hired by Intel after this point in time to uh, help educate the market about why <laughs> this was a big deal. Uh, do you mind sharing with our audience a little bit about what you did when you were hired by Intel and, and the types of people that you came into contact with uh, that might have contributed to the massive growth and adoption of this technology? Yes. In 1974, the Intel Marketing Group asked myself and my business partner, Manny Lemus, to come over and join them in a meeting. And the meeting was basically, what can we do to make this product uh, viable? Because the owner of Intel told them they only had a certain amount of time or else he was going to drop the line. Uh, so it was about a day discussion and I remember we came, there were some options, but the big option was we need to get out there and train the users. You know, we want to sell to engineers, but engineers don't know how to program. It's a new concept. The only programmers around were data processing programmers for like insurance companies or government. Uh, programming your control system, you know, reading bits and sending bits out, that was a new concept. So we came up with a one-week program, a training program, where we would teach two days on their 4-bit computer, the 4004, 
two days on their 8-bit computer, the 8080. And then one day, the gentleman named Gary Kildall from Digital Research, he would come in and teach the high-level language that he wrote for the computers. And we probably trained 800 to 1,000 engineers over two years. And keep in mind, we didn't have like computer terminals. We had teletypes we had to drag around the country. You know, these are like 150 pound units, big boxes. It was a real pain. And some hotels like in Chicago, they refused to carry them inside. So they would drop them off at the shipping dock and they made us take them into the uh, conference room. Uh, but we ended up training those engineers and the highlight was the one engineer, well, two highlights. One is near the beginning, uh, the professor of my switching theory class walked in and was going to be in the class. So I need, I had to teach, or I had the privilege of teaching him how to program a microprocessor. And he's the one that taught me logic. That's incredible. Uh, that is incredible. We had a lot of fun. Uh, but then uh, the next year, this vice president of NCR, who had about a thousand engineers working for him, uh, was in the class. And I think it was a Thursday. So it'd be about the fourth day. He finally got his 20 or 30 line program working that detected the throwing of a switch and turning the light on. And he just jumped up, threw his hands in the air, and said, hallelujah. And he finally, he realized that a, a design can be programmed. And if there's a mistake, you can reprogram it. You don't have to, like, redesign the whole board, which is a huge time saver. And he ended up going back and uh, converting the whole company to microprocessors and was was one of Intel's largest customers for years and years and years. Now, every microprocessor took memory, and Intel sold both, so that was really a great thing. And that's really what helped Intel out a lot. You might sell one microprocessor, but you could sell 12 memory chips with it. Makes sense. Yeah. I don't know why uh, American Microsystems didn't see that, but they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> One of the topics that's come up previously on our podcast is the topic of credentials and getting licensed. Did you have to get any licenses to do the work that you were being hired to do? Or was it a pretty uh, open field as far as being able to obtain jobs without licenses? Absolutely open. Licenses didn't come until mid-80s. And that's when Microsoft started uh, pushing companies to have certified uh, license users and developers on their products. Like I even did some beta testing for some Microsoft license. Um, and it was interesting in the late eighties, I think I tried to hire in or I interviewed for a company and they asked me what licenses I had. I said, well, I don't have any, but I was 
the tester on a lot of them, and I've been around, you know, 20 years. They said, oh, I'm sorry, we can't hire you. You don't have a license. That's pretty dumbfounding that they would be so short-sighted. Well, it it kind of showed that the market was to the point where they didn't want to take a chance on your knowledge if it wasn't certified. Because that kind of gets them off the hook, you know? Like if I created a problem, they could say, well, he was certified and, and so we did what we were supposed to do. It was all his problem then. And that's how it is today, especially when networking came along. Uh, companies wouldn't hire you to mess with their network unless you were certified because you could really mess them up uh, just by changing permissions wrong or changing passwords wrong. Uh, so I understand the certification, but in the 70s and early 80s, nah, it's just if you could design something that worked, you could sell it. Did the ending of the Cold War and the dissolution of the USSR uh, have a transparent effect from your perspective on uh, the engineering industry of the time? This was in the early 90s. I don't think so. I know it changed the military a lot. Um, but by then, we were so consumer-oriented with handheld calculators, small computers, you know, and all the electronic devices, uh, there was plenty of engineering to go around and plenty of programming. Uh, programming was in demand like it is today. And now what did go down was mechanical engineering. I mean, if you graduated 80s, 90s in mechanical engineering, you probably would have a tough time getting a job or aerospace engineering. But if you were electrical, electronic, computer science, uh, you'd have no problem. Now, today in 2018, it feels weird saying that uh, you yourself are a teacher and an educator. Uh, what, what do you tell your students about, um, maybe high school students and college students you speak to, uh, about guidance you'd give them about entering the job market and pursuing a, a engineering career? I'm no different than their parents and the other teachers. They don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you have to tell them. And, uh, and I'm in small town, Mississippi. I, you know, I, I concentrate in rural areas, so there's not a lot of vision. So you have to kind of create the vision on what's out there. And then you have to convince them that, yes, if they take the right courses and learn the material, that they could be out there doing that also. Um, this is my seventh year here. And I think next year I may have my first junior hire graduate from college. Uh, but there's a lot more coming in, in back of her. So it's. Mississippi is a little unique because the isolated rural areas, you know, that the vision is really lacking. So we're having to work on that a lot and do field trips and visit, you know, the colleges and companies. Uh, yeah, the kids aren't too impressed with hardly anything <laughs> you tell them, but 
you know, we know on this side as adults that if they don't learn certain things, it's, it's a pretty cruel world out there. And basic math, basic science, um, you know, consumer kinds of uh, electronics, you know, they really need to learn that. You know, we're, we're going to live in an automated, high-tech world real soon. And if you don't have knowledge of that stuff, it would be hard to exist. One of the types of things that you do as an educator that I think is a really good uh, activity for education, educating kids about opportunities in tech and engineering is competitions. Uh, do you mind sharing with our audience some of the competitions that you uh, have your students participate in? Sure. Um, well, to facilitate the competitions, I started a nonprofit called STEM Advancement. And in Mississippi, we operate as Mississippi Robotics. And so because I work with a lot of rural areas, well, I teach two days a week at one particular rural area called Woodville, Mississippi. It's uh, Wilkinson County Christian Academy, way down by Louisiana. But I travel to six or seven other ones uh, every two weeks. And so I realized that these kids don't really leave their community very often. And I just said, well, wouldn't it be great to get them together once or twice a year and let them compete with each other? And they just ended up loving it. They love the challenge. They love meeting new friends. You know, a lot of them get each other's uh, phone number and they text during the year. Um, so that has grown quite a bit. In four years, it's grown from 35 for competition to about 250. And we picked up a major corporation, Nissan uh, Automotive, and they, they sponsored the competitions and they let us uh, do one of them inside their uh, factory uh, once a year, and that's coming up this April. And they realized that working with young kids in the robotics, math, science, automation area builds future employer employees for them. And what's really been nice for me is that in my discussions with Nissan, they've introduced me to what they call employable skills. Now, at first I thought that was, oh, math, science, history, you know, being able to be interviewed. No, it's turning screwdrivers and realizing gear ratios. And they have a list of about 2,000 skills that are needed to run a factory. And they suggested to me, is, is there a way you can start teaching your kids these skills? And it has nothing to do with a curriculum, but it has a lot to do with the activities within any curriculum. And so I started a conference, a teacher conference. We call it the STEM Teachers Industry Trainers Conference. And we have one coming up in two weeks, our third one. And so I get all these people together and we talk about these skills and how we can use them in teaching all of our various activities. And Nissan just loves that. Because in a normal math class or a normal science class, these skills may not be used. And now that we're introducing them and teachers are using them and we use them in our competition, uh, 
you know, they can see that we're building employees and that's, they really like that. So just having that relationship between industry and uh, education is, is really unique, I think. Yeah, I, th I think you're doing a wonder of a public service to your community as an educator and uh, trying to innovate with uh, alternative outside of the classroom types of forms of education. So I, I just want to personally uh, tell you that I admire the type of work that you're doing. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, before we sign off for this episode, I want to mention that we're going to include uh, notes for the show with links to some of the stuff that Ray's been mentioning. Uh, and also, I want to plug real quick that uh, Ray is also an author uh, in which he's written about his life experiences as an engineer working on the things we've mentioned in the episode. Uh, Ray, do you mind uh, mentioning some of the, the works that you've authored? I've only actually only authored one book called The Accidental Engineer, which is how we got together, since that's your website also. <laughs> I love what you're doing. Uh, Likewise. I have authored several papers over the years, um, and I have two websites, which you said you'd link to. One is uh, firstmicroprocessor.com, and the other one is mississippirobotics.org. We'll include both the links on the webpage where we where we post this interview, uh, and of course to your book. <laughs> Great, I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on, Ray. I really appreciate it, Max, and thanks for what you're doing. It's interesting. I love the other interviews I've uh, watched and listened to. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Ray and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. 